Iconic's phrase, you know, that and uh, I want you to want me, you know, be, everybody knows that uh, from that record. I want you to want me. Big eyes. I need your love. This next one is the first song on our new album. It just came out this week, and the song is called Surrender. Before our first record came out, we opened for Queen. Because they were so huge in Japan, people took interest in us. The fact that the, the, there was press from Japan at those shows, because Queen was such a big, huge hit, I wrote a, a two-page article for Ungang Senka or Music Life saying I'm uh, being on tour with Queen. Then right after that article, we started getting fan mail because our record still wasn't out because this is 77, beginning of 77. And then by, uh, and then we opened for Kiss in 77 also and did three months with them. And once again, the Japanese press was there. There were all these Japanese journalists to see Queen and we were op opening for them, so. That was huge for us. You, you think about how stupid things were in, in this business. We had Live at Budokan, which is a huge album, huge album around the world, blah, blah, blah. Part two was 20 some years after that. I didn't that. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the, I didn't even the know real that. show. Huh? Oh. It was only for our Japanese fans, but then the thing did so well. Yeah. yeah and Kent, then our manager's going, don't worry, nobody's ever going to see this. Oh. It's just for Japan. The cover sucks, I know, but. Don't worry, you guys. I'll never get out I of anywhere. It's the best freaking yeah. cover there was. <laughs> <laughs> it's like our biggest live record. I know. It's like <laughs> suddenly it's like Peter Frampton. Well, you sorry, but, man. But you guys kicked you guys kicked that off. You paved the way for us because that Budokan album opened up the whole thing, the whole Western invasion uh, of Japan. In a way, and, the, and we were right there. Like it was you guys, and then we jumped right in. And you're still to this day. You just play yeah, yeah, we just were there. there. I was we're telling there. these guys we get we go to the airport. We were just, and we're, we're sitting on the airplane. We yeah, we're sitting on the airplane, and we look out, and there's like five thousand kids. And we're all looking at each other going, who the hell is here? President, must, yeah, president must be in first class. We're all in a coach. What the hell's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when we get off the plane, we realize what it was all about, you know? All right. Well, welcome to episode eight of CFX. It is entitled, I Want You to Want Me. Me. 
Me. And it Me. is our uh, dedication here to Cheap Trek's Live at Budokan album, uh, a very seminal album in the history of music. And certainly Cheap Trek, as you heard, that was uh, an interview um, on Live with Daryl's House. Cheap Trek uh, went and did a session on that TV show, and they were they were talking about that album. And obviously, Cheap Trick was a, a big uh, influence for Hollow Notes and, and set up them touring Japan as Daryl Hall was uh, just talking about. So uh, I'm Jeff and that's Slip. I'm Slip. And for those of you who are new to CFX, just a reminder of our uh, conceit here. Uh, we're called the Cultural Futures Exchange or CFX for short. Here's the place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera, movies, music, TV, etc. Dive into the context and time that they came out, what's happened since, our take on their future valuation in terms of if you should go long and invest, if you should go short and sell, or relatively neutral, and our sort of uh, opinions of how that will transpire, and if it's new or weird or seems like an odd concept, it is, but hang in there. It'll make sense over time as you uh, continue to get on board with what we're doing here. So, okay, so... Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, 1978. What was uh, happening here at the time, uh, setting the stage, the zeitgeist? Uh, Slip, do you want to take this away? And yeah, talk about I want to go a little bit into the background of this kind of music, because essentially, you know, what Cheap Trick is, is kind of power pop, but they kind of straddle two worlds a little bit. And so they're influenced by, obviously, the Beatles are the hugest influence here. I mean, if the Beatles are a subgenre of pop. I think the Beatles almost are like a subgenre and it's called power pop. And it's usually these bands that basically play very melodic poppy songs like the Beatles did. And they use a lot of the same chord progressions and harmonies and cheap trick is certainly that. Right. But there were other bands before them. So there was obviously one of the first was in the late sixties. One of my favorite bands of all time and cheap trick also majorly influenced by this band called the move. Right. And the move, uh, they even cover the move uh, with the song California Man, and the move were started by Roy Wood and and uh, and and then eventually um, Jeff Lynne joined as well. And there was also ELO, which are another band that is massively, massively influenced by the Beatles, right? So you had these bands around, and then you had Badfinger, who were actually on Apple Records, and they sound amazing like the Beatles. They even the Beatles even wrote some songs for them. Um, and then you had Big Star, who, um, you know, obviously will come to play a part in uh, Cheap Trick history much later with that 70s show, the one that the theme that everybody knows, um, which is originally a Big Star song. And so you had all these bands kind of playing, uh, you know, very beatle music. And obviously Rick Nielsen was very influenced by these these bands. So you had this was part of the zeitgeist. Right. But then you also had like punk happening and new wave happening. And Cheap Trick kind of came at a time where a lot of other bands that were doing something more basic than the kind of big bloated prog rock that I love, but, you know, obviously was there was a reaction against that. And there was a really severe reaction against it in something like the Sex Pistols, but there was a more moderate reaction against it in terms of people like Elvis Costello, you know, the Cars, Tom Petty even. Well, there, I mean, there, I that reaction was to like the... The Led Zeppelin type bands too, right? It wasn't yeah, the, just the, the, yeah, the the big kind of arena, you know, half hour versions of Dazed and Confused. Right. Let's get back to two or three minute pop songs, right? Yep. And um, obviously, Tom Petty. I remember 
reading and, and you see his first album, he's got this leather jacket on and people are like, oh, he's punk. And there couldn't be anything farther from the truth, right? Whereas then you get bands like Elvis Costello and the Cars that are definitely more deeply rooted in New Wave, but there's also a kind of classic classicism about them, right? I mean, Elvis Costello was much more influenced by Joni Mitchell than he was the Sex Pistols, right? He's a singer-songwriter kind of guy. Um, and Cheap Trick were in that kind of context. And you look at the album covers of Cheap Trick, right? With that logo, you know, the repeating typeset thing, that's almost like a new wave logo, you know? It was marketed that way a little bit, but then they were also, this well, was also it was like the a time punk, it was like a punk, uh, like a Samzadat newspaper kind of thing, right? A little fancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's also very spare looking, right? Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the fancy logos of something like Chicago with these sweeping letters right. and, you exactly. know, yes. And, this cursive that's so rooted in the early seventies, this seemed like kind of almost, it looks eighties. looks homemade, you know, when they were trying to go after that kind of fanzine looking thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Even though the band themselves weren't really part of that movement at all. Um, they were kind of more a part of the new up and coming bands that were around then, like Queen, Aerosmith, and even Kiss. And you know, ironically, of course, our part of the story is that they opened up for all these bands. Right. They were they were touring with them. So they kind of fit in that niche, even though Aerosmith are much more like a Rolling Stones kind of derived band. Um, and Kiss, you know, as Beatle influenced as they were, uh, don't really sound like the Beatles. They sound like more like just straight ahead rock. And then you've got Queen, which also has very Beatlesque uh, uh, passages, you know, even though Queen were kind of doing something else, too. And they mixed in prog rock and stuff. But it's it's all that is the context of what we're what we're in, right? Those are the kind of music, that's the kind of music Cheap Trick came up in, I would say. Yep. And the, the uh, background of this album and, and Cheap Trick, where, where did they come from? Tell us about how they came together. Yeah, so as a going band. into the history of the band, what's interesting is, you know, when you look at the history of the band, it doesn't even seem like they would be the kind of band they were given the origins, right? So obviously, you know, the band is all from uh, all from around uh, the, they're all from the Midwest. Three out of four members were born in Rockford, Illinois. Rockford is is their basic hometown, right? And there are different ages, right? So Rick Nielsen's the oldest. Um, Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson are kind of of the same, around the same age. And then you've got like Bunny Carlos a few years younger than, uh, you know, Robin Zander even younger than that. And you know, Rick, Rick Nielsen grew up, he was kind of a class clown, but he also started playing in bands early, he played drums first, and he played guitar because the reason he played um, guitar was because he had perfect pitch and he was frustrated when playing in bands that the guitarist would always get the parts wrong and he could tell just from hearing, right? So he right. Could, he's one of these guys who could listen to a song on the radio, pick it off right away, right? So he's really talented. Um, he met Bunny Carlos when they were kids. Now, Bunny Carlos's real name is Brad Carlson. I, in my research, I couldn't find out where Bun E. Carlos came from at all. That I, was a mystery to me that I really wanted to find out. Did you find out anything about I that? I think so. I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. I think he had a relative whose nickname was Bunny. It might have been his mm. grandmother. It might have been somebody like that. The nickname was Bunny and he liked it. But I'm, I think I read that or heard that somewhere, but I'm not 100% sure about that, actually. Well, I'm just going to say one thing first, is that if there are any aspiring male adult actors out there and they don't have a stage name, you could do a lot worse than Bone E. Carlos. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. So, I like yeah. it. 
I like it. That's good. <laughs> Bony Carlos. You, you saw that. Plus, I would love it if the guy actually looked like Bunny Carlos. Like he had that same style, you know, and he just had well, a huge but dick Bunny Carlos looked like he worked in a porn theater in the San Fernando Valley, like circa 1978. I mean, that is the look he was rocking back then. So it's all very apropos. Yeah. We'll talk more about the band's look a lot because that's one of, I think, one of the key ingredients that makes them unique, right? So, of course, these guys saw the Ed Sullivan Beatles thing. You know, that's the same old story, right? They saw Ed Sullivan. That's where that's where uh, Bun decided to play drums, right? And he was in various bands. They were friends, but they didn't play in bands together right away, right? Um, Rick Nielsen had a band called the Grim Reapers. And they got some popularity um, on a trip to England. He actually brought back a Mellotron. Again, a Mellotron is a is a classic prog rock instrument. It has nothing to do with power pop at all. Um, but this is the kind of thing he was doing then. Uh, and the Grim Reapers got some popularity. You know, they played around the Midwest, et cetera. And they eventually were getting interest from record labels. But the, the record labels didn't like the kind of macabre name. Uh, Tom Peterson joined Grim Reaper uh, or the Grim Reapers. And then they, they changed their name to Fuse. And Fuse is like this really heavy, deep purple-esque music. You can find the album on YouTube, and it's it's completely different than what Cheap Trick would be. Um, you know, not even related at all. There's there's no commonality there. It's pretty good, actually. I like it. And um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, Rick Nielsen's a great guitarist, but he was a more of a rhythm guy, you know, and we'll talk about that in his style. Uh, how it differs from the typical guitar hero. Pete Townsend, but, you but, could say the same thing, by the way. Yeah, uh, exactly. He's yeah. very Pete. I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of Who in Cheap Trick too. I should I should have mentioned them when I mentioned the Move and the Beatles because there's a ton of Who there, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, he's definitely more like Pete Townsend, right? A songwriter first and a guitarist second, really. Um, but I I'd argue he's even technically better than Pete Townsend as a guitarist. I would I would argue that. Um, but but. Um, as much as I love Pete Townsend, but you know, so they so they got together in this band, and then eventually their drummer left, and and Bunny Carlos joined them. So he was infused for a bit. The uh, they had one album, like I said, you can listen on YouTube. It's pretty good, but completely different. Was a total failure, right? And so they um, kind of regrouped and formed this band called Sick Man of Europe. And while they were doing that, they had this other singer, Randy Hogan, who also played in this band called Bad Boy, which is a really a B-rate band that had albums in the 70s that was kind of similar to Cheap Trick. Um, but they ditched Randy Hogan because he was too kind of singing over the the music. He was too Robert Plant-esque for what they wanted. And so they had another friend that they had met, Robin Zander, and they brought him in. And they changed the name to Cheap Trick because they all went to see this band, Slade. You know, they're the English band, the origin- originators who come on Field of Noise, right? They went to see them and Slade at this goofy stage show. And they said, you know, this band pulled out every cheap trick in the book. And that's yeah. where the name came from. Right? I, so that's I, the origin of the band. I, I got to say, by the way, just as you're going through the history of the band and the different sub bands and names that they had, it just reminds me about how great Spinal Tap is and how perfect they got every aspect of that movie, including where they're talking about how they were all in these bands that came up, you know, like the skiffle bands. Obviously, they were like making fun of the Beatles or referencing the Beatles. Yeah. But it was all just like you were in this band. I forget the name of it. I should have all those quotes memorized, but you were in this band and then we were in this band. Like it's all the same story. It's just hilarious yeah. how well they got that. It's just and the aside. changing names, changing the with changing the names. So, so they're yeah. they're fused and they're doing the zeitgeist of that time, which is heavy, deep purple rock, right? And then they completely changed their tune, right? 
to be a completely different band changing with the times, just like Spinal Tap is doing. Listen to what the Flower Children say. And then all of a sudden they're doing Big Bottom, you know. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Spinal Tap is, is a complete work of genius. Um, so, so the, you know, they're playing around the Midwest and, and they're, uh, getting, uh, a lot of notoriety. They, uh, have this, so they had this manager, Ken Adamani, who I think was a pretty good manager because he managed to get the attention of Jack Douglas, who was the producer of Aerosmith. That's mainly what he was known for. He did other stuff too, but he had ju- he was just fresh off of producing Aerosmith's, what I consider their absolute masterpiece rocks. And this was a huge album. And the, you know, uh, Ken Adam and he was like, I love the way this album sounds. This is the way I want Cheap Trick to sound, right? So they they basically invited, they paid for him to fly to um, Waukesha, Wisconsin to play. <laughs> they, Cheap Trick were playing this bowling alley. Was it Michigan? Is, I think, per, is that Michigan? Or no, or no I had a typo. It's Wisconsin. Okay. I screwed up. Uh, so so basically, um, yeah, so... So they played this bowling alley, and that's that's a perfect milieu for someone like Bunny Carlos. The bowling alley, I just picture him, you know, actually as a professional bowler. He looks like a professional um, bowler or a yeah. plumber. Or I you just see him with a cigarette rolling a ball down the yeah. alley. You know, it's a oh, perfect yeah. in, in, a thing. And 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 you know, he Chaper got a pretty wild show at the time. They would do this thing called the carnival sh- carnival game, um, and Rick Nielsen would ask a girl to come up from the audience. And he would say, I want to guess your weight. You have to sit on me. And he'd lay down on the, on the stage and he would get the girl to sit on him. And then of course he'd say, no, you got to sit on my face. <laughs> so where you guess your weight. So the girl would sit on his face and then he would, you know, she would get up and he'd be like, oh, P.U. Just like really kind of, he, he's a dirty minded guy as we'll talk about in some of the songs. You know, he's kind of got this prurient side to him yeah. and that was part of it. And so but Jack Douglas was blown away by the band. You know, he thought Rob, Robin Zander was one of the best singers he'd ever heard, um, which I also think. But um, uh, and, you know, the band was great. Their songs are so good. Right. And so he brought in Tom Worman. He, he contacted Tom Worman, who was an A&R man for Epic, also a producer himself. Um, and uh, they saw the band and then the band, uh, you know, would get signed. Right. Um, and then, of course, they recorded their debut album, which I think, you know, is an absolute classic. Uh, it's it's darker and weirder than any of the other hit, you know, more kind of famous albums of this time that they would make. And it has some, you know, very unique, but catchy songwriting. I mean, Elo Kitties, which is a play on ELO. Uh, it's almost like a, a kind of, um, you know, just a, a shout out to ELO, um, you know, is a weird, but super catchy song. And they have my fa- one of my favorite songs, probably in the top five of Cheap Church songs, is a song called Taxman, Mr. Thief, which is an homage to the Beatles' Taxman. And it's about the same thing, but it sounds completely different. It's more like a kind of darker John Lennon sound than the George Harrison song. And it's really melodically com- complicated. And um, they did that they on also the this- Daryl's house. Uh, oh, they show. did. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah. That's so great. And then they did. Um, they had this song called The Ballad of Richard Speck. Richard Speck was a serial murderer who'd killed all these nurses. And the the label was like, yeah, you can't you can't have that song. So they changed it to The Ballad of TV Violence. And that's a really, that almost sounds like Well, Well, Well from John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. It's got that kind of John Lennon darkness to it and edge. and um, But heavier, you know, because of Jack Douglas's production. So it's like if the Beatles went kind of proto-metal, you know, it's like, not like Helter Skelter, but like they're more melodic stuff. Like I want you, she's so heavy, but even heavier than that, you know? Yep. And I love the production on this album. I think they nailed it this time. And, but unfortunately the album completely stiffed, you know, it was a total bomb, even though, you know, it's full of great songs. I think it's 
great from start to finish. So the record label wanted another album immediately. I mean, this album didn't even make the top 200 albums. Uh, so they wanted another album immediately, and they were trying to get, they were thinking about getting Jack Douglas back, but since the album stiff, the record label's like, no, we don't want to use him. And Tom Werman was just like, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to produce it myself. So they made in color. Um, and as far as a collection of songs, it's even better than the first album. You know, the songs are completely memorable and catchy, all sound like radio hits to me. Um, but the production is quite strange. You know, it's a little thinner. Um, I think most of it sounds pretty good, but I think, you know, um, you know, the guy, the, the Prague uh, kind of, you know, guy, Stephen Wilson has been, you know, remixing all of these Prague albums. He's done like, yes, and King Crimson, and he does these really good remixes of these albums. I almost want someone like him to take a look at it in color and just remix it. It could really use it. Um, well, Tom Warman, strangest thing, of course, went on to produce Motley Crue. If you, oh wow, yeah, wow, which records did he produce? Um, not the first one. He did produce Shout and uh, Theater of Pain, and that made, well, Theater of Pain's not his fault. Yeah, that's not his fault. But Shout, he did a great job. Yeah. I mean, that's a great sounding record. Yeah, I think you know? he did so, those two. Uh, he might have done another one, but definitely those two, I believe. But this was kind of one of his, I mean, you know, he produced the Ted Nugent albums. I sent, I, I don't think they, those sound great. I think there's some good rec, good songs on there and there's some, there's some decent Ted Nugent albums, but I don't think they have a great sound and color doesn't have that great of a sound. Um, and he really messed up. I want you to want me. So I want you to want me was a song the band had been playing around and they would always introduce it jokingly as their hit single. They considered kind of a joke. They wanted to write the most poppy kind of bubble gummy thing they could write. But, you know, live, the song had much more of an edge and he added all these kind of piano. We'll, we'll talk more about what he did to that and kind of listen to a bit of that, um, because I think it's really important uh, to the evolution of that song. Um, but, you know, and he even had Jay Graydon, who was the great Yacht Rock, guitar, uh, you know, studio guitarist, come in and do some guitar Peg. over the top. Uh, go goose. Uh, yeah. Um, goofy piano in there and you know it's just a, a weird way to do it and cheap trick hated it and they still don't like the sound of the album um the album uh basically stiffed as well at least in the united states but we'll talk about that more um because there was one country where it didn't stiff but it only reached number 73 right um during this time cheap trick were opening for various bands and of course they opened for kiss and a funny story here um one night they were opening for Kiss, and of course, Peter Chris was fully in his cups at this time, and he was, um, you know, taking various drugs, and one night he was not sure if he could go on. He'd took, taken something weird, and the band was like, uh, you know, so Gene Simmons went to Bonnie Carlos and said, hey, man, you better suit up. Uh, you might need to play for Peter Chris." And I was like, man, that would have been amazing. I would love the idea of Bunny Carlos in the cat makeup, but with his glasses and the cigarette and the shirt. That would have been like so punch, cool. And, and of course, thing. the drumming yeah. would be way better. Of course. You know? Bunny like, Carlos is a really is, solid drummer. Yeah. Yeah. He's a solid, like total workman drummer, yeah. you know, like not, not a virtuoso by any means. And that's the way I think of this band a lot. Like they're just all really good. Like they're a great band together. They can play really well. Um, but none of them are like, you know, he's not going to be like John Bonham. Right. But but at the same time, it would have been great. Right. Definitely. So then they're back in the studio again for Heaven Tonight. Uh, and uh, arguably, this is their best record on stu in the studio. Uh, and uh, it is pretty much perfect from start to finish, full of great classics. Of course, Surrender. We'll talk a lot more about that song. Um, and Tom Warman produced this, but he did better. Right. So it kind of has the edginess and heaviness of the first album 
but the real memorable catchiness of the second album. And it was great. But again, it didn't immediately catch on. Um, and the band by this time was a million dollars in debt and they kind of needed something to happen or they were going to have to, uh, um, you know, basically hang it up. And this is where we come to the whole Budokan story. So I'm going to hand it off to you and you can take over. Yeah. So, you know, like Slip said, they were not doing that great. They were mostly a Midwest band. They were playing, I think I read in some interview, 300 to 800 kind of uh, seat arena, that kind of stuff, arenas around the Midwest mostly. Um, not super popular, but doing okay, you know, for a band at that time, but certainly not superstars. Um, the, you know, in the beginning of the show, there was a clip where Rick Nielsen was talking about how they started to um, gain popularity elsewhere, right? And, and the place that they were gaining popularity that uh, Slip was alluding to was Japan. And it's kind of a weird thing, like why, why Japan? Why were they gaining popularity in Japan? And they, Japan was really becoming interested in rock music, really on the backs of Queen, as it were, right? Like the Queen was very, very popular there. Um, huge and and you know Queen toured there quite a lot in the seventies for for obvious reasons uh, very lucrative and uh, they were uh, adored there right and the um, Rick Nielsen I think uh, wrote a story even about them opening up for Queen or what that was like and you know they're they're fans of Queen too like like most people um, when they went over to uh, Japan. Um, it was cheap trek, right? Leading up uh, to Budokan. What was really interesting was they had no idea about their popularity. They had a couple of songs there that were gaining um, radio play there. I think uh, Clock, Strikes, Clock Strikes 10, if I could get it out, was one of those. Yeah, it was a number one song there. Yeah. And that's, that's I always wondered before, you know, I didn't know that much about this background. I knew they were popular. I knew the whole Budokan story at a very high level. But looking into it, I, I, you know, there's that that song, the intro to the song. Um, Robin Zander says, here's one you all know. And that's why, because yeah. it was the big hit there, even though I Want You to Want Me was a hit there, too. Um, but Clock Strikes 10 was a, was only released in Japan as a single and it was number one. It's a huge, it's a huge uh, song there. And Cheap Trick going over to play Japan, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, they weren't opening for every, anybody. So... Um, the they had experience cheap trick did playing for larger uh, crowds but it was opening for kiss and it was opening for these other bands that they opened for um when they played by themselves uh you know for solo shows it was again 300 500 800 1000 uh seat uh theaters and so going over to japan they didn't really know what to expect they were playing at budokan they had never been there they didn't know anything about it it was a uh, 10 to 12,000 seat arena, depending on, uh, you know, where, what you read. Um, and when they got there, they are on the plane, they were in coach. Um, they had no idea what was about to happen. And they pulled up to the airport and they saw like a throng of thousands of, of screaming, uh, people at the airport. And at the time security wasn't, is, wasn't what it is now. And there was like a bridge where you could see the planes land and it was completely overrun by people and there's people at the gate and it was crazy. And Cheap Trek were kind of looking at each other and going, well, who's on this plane? Is like the, you know, president of Japan, they said, right? Not really understanding their political system. But, the you know, they like had no idea who it was. And when they got off the plane, they 
quickly realized it was it was for them and they were completely overwhelmed. And there's lots of stories you can find about them and their experience leading up to the shows where they were just being chased like Beatlemania style by thousands and thousands of people. And they they couldn't go anywhere. They were trapped in their hotel. Um, and they, yeah, they would have to, uh, when they were driving around, they would have to lay on the floor of the limo or whatever that was driving them around because they couldn't be see they the car would just be swamped with fans. And even, uh, one point, uh, you know, as they were trying to make their way to either one of the shows or just around town, uh, a, a overzealous fan like basically stabbed Robin Zander in the back of the neck while trying to cut a clip of his blonde hair to keep uh, off of his head, off his head. So, I mean, that's how crazy this was. It was dangerous. Like, you know, it's like hard day's night where the Beatles are running for their life. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And trick mania. It was trick mania. It was, it was off the hook, man. And well, I mean, they were even telling stories about how the, their promoter there, told them not to go to the window of their hotel rooms. And they had to like put paper up on the windows because when fans in the street would see them and they'd run across the street through traffic and like people, like, <laughs> it's like crazy, just ridiculous. And, and they were so like, didn't know what to make of this. They had no experience with this level of fame whatsoever. It was completely surreal. They didn't even understand what was going on. They said they, they were just like overwhelmed and trapped in the hotel. And it was, is it like a slip set? It's kind of a, a dangerous uh, situation, and they were just kind of trapped, couldn't do anything, go anywhere. Um, when they went to the Budokan Arena, um, they actually had were in laundry trucks that were pulled into the basement of the hotel. Wow! Um, because they couldn't. That's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And and uh, I think Tom Peterson said they never actually saw Budokan from the front until like a decade later, because they they were you know were transported in you know hidden laundry truck. Uh, camouflage and all that kind of stuff. Just ridiculous. Um, the other things about the show is they whether they were going to record it or not was unclear. Uh, Robin Zander had mentioned that when they showed up at the arena, they didn't think they were going to record it because the Japanese crew had set everything up and basically hidden all the microphones and cameras very artfully. So they Robin was like, oh, well, I guess they're just not going to record this. And that was fine. But the... Um, you know, they were all set up, ready to go. And, you know, when getting to the arena, it was really an overwhelming experience because it was the biggest audience that they played for as an opener by far. Again, they had opened for Kiss and other bands that had those kind of uh, audience numbers, but never uh, Cheap Trick themselves at that point. Um, they recorded this album over a couple nights in April of 1978. Um, the album. Before we get yeah, into that. We should talk about why we think uh, they were popular. And this isn't my opinion. This is, I read a book called, uh, you know, they, they, uh, it just seemed a little weird by Doug Broad that kind of goes into cheap, cheap trick is one of the bands that's covered. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think it might've been this guy you mentioned uh, later in, you know, when you go into the details of the recording itself, right. This Tai Onishi, it might've been him, It was, but it was, or it might've been the, the J, um, one of the other, uh, you know, people that was escorting them, you know, they had a bunch of handlers and stuff that were helping them from the record company, et cetera. But it might've been this Sony product manager you mentioned, I'm not sure. But, you know, in the book, he, they're basically saying, well, why were they big in Japan? What about them made them so big? Well, if you think about Japanese culture, one thing about Japanese culture is image is paramount, right? So, you know, when you have sushi, the way that the sushi is presented is just as important as how it tastes, right? 
When you give a gift to someone in Japan, the wrapping is just as important as what's inside, right? So Cheap Trick had this very unique image. You know, we, we, we'll talk about this more, but obviously we know that were their first several albums, not the first album, but with In Color and Heaven Tonight and Budokan, you have the pretty boys on the front of the record and you've got the goofballs on the back. Yeah. There was no other band that looked like this. You know, there's plenty of bands that had someone who looked like a pretty boy, like Tom Peterson or Robin Zander. But what band had the other two guys right. look like Pee Wee Herman right. and, you know, a child molester? You know, it's like, you, you know, yeah. and these guys, these goofballs in the back. I mean, I love one of my favorite album covers of all time is in color where you've got these hot, sexy kind of, Mark Bolan-esque guy and the and the blonde guy. And I remember, um, you know, I'll talk more about this in in my uh, kind of history, but I remember that that Robin Zander look was like, I had went to kids of school at that same hair who were like all the girls liked, right? So right. you got the Dreamboats on the front, the rock stars on these really nice Harleys, choppers. And on the back, you have the dorks on these mopeds. Yeah, You know, it's like, it's the perfect encapsulation. So I think this, this um, Taionishi, he basically said, well, that's that's the thing. Image was important. So when they started seeing pictures in the magazines after, you know, you know, obviously the the article you mentioned, they were coming back, you know, in Japanese pop magazines were showing these guys. That's kind of what made them take off. That was his theory. You know, and obviously the music had an effect as well, you know, but because it was different than a lot of what was going on at the time. And it was so catchy. But I'll let you get back to the actual uh, gist of the record. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously they were in on that joke, right? Uh, clearly right. putting them on mopeds on the back and, and you know, it was, it was funny. And, you know, Rick Nielsen, obviously, you know, his Pee Wee Herman's a great uh, sort of analogy, mugging for the camera yeah. a lot. And, you know, his sort of goofy Actually, style. Actually, the guy he really looks like and everybody says and rock critics have said, and in this book they talk about it is this, uh, uh, you know, actor named Hunts Hall, who was in the Bowery Boys. Okay. He looks just like him. And he has that look. And, and it's funny because Hunts Hall was actually one of the uh, celebrities that the Beatles uh, honored on Sgt. Pepper. He's like in the upper right hand corner. So it's kind of, you know, maybe maybe that influenced Rick Nielsen because he has the wears the ball cap in the same way. And he kind of looks like him on the face. But anyway, but I always thought Pee Wee Herman, he has that kind of uh, aura, too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely has that, you know, with the funky little hats and outfits and all that right. kind of stuff. Um, very quirky looking. Very quirky. Um, so Budokan, Live at Budokan, there eventually became two versions of the album. And the, the, the second anniversary version is the one that I'm most familiar with because I listened to that probably more. But the original one came out, you know, what, six months later, something like that. Um, the the uh, single from uh, the album Clock Strikes 10 was very popular. Um there, as we were t we were talking about, and the cheap trick, a Budokan hit single, I Want You Don't Want Me, came out the next year in 79. Um, Budokan, from a cheap trick point of view, and they readily acknowledge, saved the band. Uh, we talked about them being in debt. But they were not doing great. They were not doing great, uh, it really, even in touring in America. They were kind of a local band. Budokan changed their trajectory, like, tremendously. And uh they made, they like to say, they made Budokan famous and Budokan made them famous, right? And it's really, really true. When you say Budokan in popular culture, at least in the West, right, people are just like, oh, cheap trick. Like, I don't even yeah. think half the people know that that was an arena name, right? Or, you know, a stadium right. or whatever it was. That's true. They put Budokan on the map. Yeah. People, people knew what it was. People knew what it was. Um, the uh, They were putting uh, the... Uh, 
you know, finished tracks uh, together. Um, the Japanese uh, record company wanted um, for for their album when they were going to do Budokan. The Japanese uh, promoter was actually they weren't going to actually play "I Want You to Want Me." That was an old song. Um, they didn't they weren't really playing it at the time, and the Japanese promoter said, "Oh no, no, you got to play this uh, part of Budokan." Uh, set because it's super popular in Japan. The, the fans will want to hear that. And they're like, okay, yeah, we can play that. They, they weren't really even playing it at that at that time. Um, when the original Budokan album came out, it was missing a bunch of songs that you think would be on there and are on the anniversary one, including Hello Kitties and um, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace. And um, I, I think a different version of Avita Zen. I'm not sure. You might know that. Yeah, Avita Zen is on one of them. There's like three or four different versions yeah. of this. There's like a 20th anniversary or 30th anniversary. I can't and, keep track. Yeah. Um, I mostly yeah. listen to the 30-year one because it has all alternate, has all the versions for both uh, nights and all that. Yeah, and you stuff. can hear those great songs. Like Avita Zen yeah. is another one of my top yeah. songs from the band. And, and uh, you know, uh, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace is incredible. It is. You know? It's it's cool. I mean, that's the thing about Budokan. It's very short. I would argue, I'll argue later that that's kind of a strength, but it's also unfortunate that the first album is completely ignored. Yep. On the on Budokan. All right. So here here's the part where uh, Slip needs to get his box of uh, tissues. So. Um, oh yeah. All right. Was this album actually live? When when we talked about Kiss Alive, we raked Kiss over the coals pretty hard because Alive was not actually a live album. And unfortunately, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the Xander. Waiting for it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Um, it was not actually a live album uh, in a lot of ways, to the same degree that Kiss wasn't a live album. Unfortunately for, for Slip, this has been very emotionally difficult for him learning about this. I mean, rumors, I think, were circulating for years about a lot of the live albums that you, everyone knows. Uh, uh, Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous, not really live. Uh, maybe dangerous, but not really that live. Yeah, just to let people know, we take notes and we put we put notes so we can kind of organize this. And I read the notes and I was completely crushed by what you're about to hear. I just want to let you know <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, this is like Je Jeff's just all about breaking hearts and crushing dreams here. That's like it's all about. <laughs> I had doing research. I found an article in Mix Magazine, kind of the recording industry. Uh, you know, magazine of, of record. And there's a whole article right. about all the stuff they did uh, to this album. So, um, you know, the story goes, right, that originally the truth comes out over time and maybe the members of the band weren't even aware of the degree of which uh, things were fixed and what the extent of what was fixed because they were each called in to do their parts. Um, you know, Bunny Carlos was basically saying, yeah, there's very little done. They patched up some guitar stuff and background vocals. Um, yeah, I'd heard just the kick drum yeah. and the Doug Broadbook. He talks about the kick drum, but he doesn't talk about much else. Uh, not anywhere near what you're going to mention. So, yeah, well, the, the kick drum was one of the things that when they were listening to it, uh, the tapes back, it was, it was lost in the mix. It was, there's a problem with recording. It, it wasn't set up right. And they basically had, they thought they could do some EQ stuff on it. They wound up just kind of really, you know, I, I think re-recording a lot of the kick drum stuff or really messing with the original uh, tape uh, a lot. Um, they were going through um, the, the show recordings, trying to find takes that were, um, you know, decent and, okay, this version is okay, this part is okay, that kind of thing. 
the net net, and you know, I can put the link to this article that goes into all the bloody details. I, I don't know if uh, Slip emotionally can take me going through each and every <laughs> piece of this. Well, we could talk about, we should talk about some of the highlights because there's some stuff that really blew me away. Like, I think um, uh, one thing uh, is the, is the uh, maybe I want you to want me vocals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, what what happened there? They they basically uh, they basically re-recorded those, and one of the things about it you can tell. By the way, if you have doubt about this or you're you're a you're a, a cheap right. trick denier, just go listen to the <laughs> just go listen to it, and you can hear Robin Zander backing himself up, which was kind of like a stupid mistake to do if you're trying to. It's really clear and obvious, and and. Um, I even noticed this years ago. I go, well, how, what's going on here? Because that sounds like Robin Zander singing with himself simultaneously, right? Because Rick Nielsen is the other vo voice you hear a lot on these, and he has a very different voice. Great, you know, and, and very good, but different. The other things that they re basically re-recorded all of the bass. Uh, apparently, there's major problems recording the bass live. They have problems with cables. They had problems with noise in, the, in their amps and all sorts of, of, of things. They, they basically um, also pulled together, uh, you know, I'm just kind of looking at, there's a whole long list here, sorry, Slip. Uh, they pulled together all sorts of, um, you know, overdubs, they re-recorded guitar solos in various places, including, I think, Surrender, they might have uh, re-recorded uh, the guitar solos there. Um, so one thing I'm gonna talk about later in my evaluation is one of my favorite things about the album, which is on, uh, you know, I want you to want me. They have the crowd kind of participating, screaming, cry, cry. Is that also fake? Yes. Or is that real? I think I think it's fake. <laughs> See, that sucks. Yeah. That sucks. I mean, I talked about in in the in our show on a live. I talked about how you know uh, Eddie Kramer had put in all that crowd noise, and it really added to the yeah. excitement of the album. And this has that more than anything. I mean, the audience is like a an additional member of the band. They contribute so much to it, all the screaming and excitement. Uh, and I always was like, well, hey, but that was real, man. That really <laughs> happened. Uh, yeah. And well, it, especially um, I think uh, Rick Nielsen and hearing the playbacks wanted to hear on, uh, you know, they wanted to hear uh, crying uh, on the. Uh, yeah. Crying, crying, crying. Cry. Yeah. And so it's so great. Yeah. So that yeah. was that was uh, uh, juiced up in various ways. Right. Um, they really had to go back and remix and play with the sound a lot. I actually think and I'll talk about this a little later. Even the final product, I think, kind of sounds like shit it, it, from an audio yeah. quality point of view. Really base on the whole thing is missing. It does not sound great, even with all the stuff that they did. I can only imagine what it must have sounded like, uh, you know, before they were doing all. Well, the band even says, like, you know, like both Tom Peterson, I think it maybe it was Robin Zander. They said the album is not their favorite. Yeah. Like it's they don't think it's very good, you know, it, as an album. But they kind of are, you know, it's got this it's the legacy of the album is overwhelmed, uh, you know, that opinion. But I think at the time they were like, this album's kind of crappy, you know, um, which I don't agree with at all. And I'll talk about. But but uh, but yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, and that could have been due to maybe the fact that, you know, it's a fabrication to an extent, right? To a large extent where they're, they're overlaying so much stuff on top of this in the studio at the, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in a sense, I never really knew how much they had, you know, 
rig this uh, live album, I knew something was a, a, a foul a little bit just by the, the backup vocals that I mentioned before. But for the most part, because it sounds not so not great, uh, I thought it was probably much more live than the uh, Kiss album, uh, Live and Live 2 and, and some of the other ones. So anyway, it is what it is. I, I think, you know, just in full disclosure, even though I think we have more respect for Cheap Trick in a lot of ways than Kiss, um, they did the same thing. So we got to be uh, yeah. upfront about that. Um, basically, the as I said, you know, they, they're very humble about it, They uh, Cheap Trick in interviews. And they readily acknowledge that this album's success was kind of, it was almost a fluke. It was almost a mistake. As Slip mentioned, this was like a Japanese-only um, thing. Robin Zander in the uh, opening clips talking to Daryl Hall was saying their uh, manager told them this was only going to be a Japanese release. Don't worry about it. No one will overhear it. No one will ever see these pictures. It's fine. That kind of thing. Uh, you know, this is only going to be distributed, you know, overseas, all the lies that are told to uh, people. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think a quote from Rick Nielsen was just four guys from the Midwest doing what they do best, playing live uh, or live and then in the studio later. Uh, Live. All right. <laughs> the fact that they're from the Midwest is such a part of their charm yeah. because, you know, when you listen to the opening, uh, one of the greatest openings of a live album of all time, in my opinion, Hello There. Uh, Which we heard, right? You know, yeah. yeah. He's singing Hello There. Are you ready to rock? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, are you ready to by rock? The crick. You can hear that, ha- that accent. Pop, yeah. By the crick. Yeah. Totally. It's like Fargo or <laughs> yeah. something. You know, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, what ended up happening, right, is uh the the label did produce a promo lp called from tokyo to you that had seven of the songs i don't know what they which ones they were but one of them most importantly was i want you to want me the live version right so this had single had stiffed in the studio version they released the live version as part of this promo and radio stations started playing it and they started getting the phones went crazy right the the requests were crazy um and um so what ended up happening was uh imports started coming in of the Budokan album, right? It was only meant for the Japanese market, but record stores started getting imports and um, people were buying them, selling like crazy. So these were like, you know, at the time an import was like 25 bucks, you know, when an album was like, you know, probably like $6 at this time or something, right? So uh, what ended up happening is is the record company was getting all this money for a $6 album. And the band was like, wait a second, you know, we're still getting like half a royalty because it's a foreign royalty, which was less. So they got their lawyers involved and said, you guys need to release this here because we're not getting our cut, right? You guys are making all this money off of us and we could sell more records. So the, and the label of course was like, well, yeah, it's going to it's really popular. So they released it here. It became massive. Um, and, uh, Oh, I Want You to Want Me was a number seven single, right? The second time around. And we'll go more into that during my evaluation of why that might have been as opposed to the original. Um, Ain't That a Shame was released as a single too. That was number 35. Budokan ended up selling 3 million copies, a number four album. It was one of the biggest albums of 1979. Um, after that, the band started getting popular, right? They... Um, they basically got um, one of the things that happened. There was there's an underground film. I still never seen this film. I really want to see it. It's actually Kurt Cobain's one of his favorite movies too, which is kind of funny uh, because I do think he's massively influenced by this band. Uh, we'll talk more about that in our evaluations of the of the legacy. But um, you know, there's this film called Over the Edge. It's mainly it's like a, a kind of a you know 
crazy teen kids take over the school kind of movie. And uh, it's mainly known for having a young Matt Dillon in the cast. And it's pretty well regarded. But there was, you know, they used Surrender and Speak Now uh, was in there as well in the soundtrack. So that that was because of the legacy of Budokan, right? Uh, additionally, uh, Roger Corman and Alan Arkish were going to make a movie called Disco High School <laughs> uh, to sort of exploit the zeitgeist. They ended up changing it to Rock and Roll High School. Nice. And the band they wanted to use in the movie was Cheap Trick. They were going to use Cheap Trick because Budokan, they were like the band of the moment, right. you know, because of Budokan. Um, Quite a step down in the appeal visually from uh, Robin Zander to Joey Ramone, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would argue that, that that they went with the right band yeah. there. Um, you know, that, that the Ramones, uh, the B-movie, monster movie, kind of, uh, you know, Joey Ramone, if you've ever seen the scene of him eating pizza in the movie, it's it's a really uh, disgusting and amazing sight. Uh, <laughs> but um, but the, the Ramones were just perfect for that. But, but the idea, um, you know, obviously it's believable that teen girls would love Robin Zander, but I love the idea that, she loves PJ Souls, who's a, the main character, loves Joey Ramone. But but at any rate, I'm going off on a tangent. So basically, Cheap Trick was just too expensive. They're like, you know, we're going to have to pay all of our crew and all this stuff to get things together. Uh, so they ended up going with the Ramones. Um, and the Dream Police, which had been sh- had to be shelved um, because of Budokan's unexpected popularity. Dream Police had been recorded months and months earlier, so it was shelved for like six or eight months or something like that. Um, so, but they released that and it was also massive. And I also think it's a fantastic album, um, much more kind of produced and orchestrated. Again, you have Tom Worman there, but you know, it's got like dream police is such an, uh, ornate song compared to what had come before with, you know, orchestral stuff and synthesizers and, you know, whatnot. Um, and then they headlined Madison square garden on that tour for the first and only time. So this was kind of the, the ba- they were the band of the moment, but then what happened, right? And even at this time, interestingly enough, due to their popularity and due to Jack Douglas's association, Jack Douglas had worked on Double Fantasy with John Lennon. So he brought in Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos to play on the songs. None of those songs were released, but John Lennon actually said to Rick Nielsen that he thought he was, you know, because he had, he had worked with Eric Clapton on Cold Turkey and he's like, Eric Clapton really blew it on that song. You know, I wish I had had you. So that's kind of cool. And it must've been cool for those guys to work with John Lennon being that they learned everything they knew from him yeah. pretty much. Um, you know, and then of course, you know, the, the, you know, the fade out, you know, what happened to them then? Well, um, you know, they, uh, their next album, uh, they work with George Martin. Um, the album is called All Shook Up and it's actually a pretty decent record, but it's not, you know, I think all their records up to this point are pretty much near flawless. This album has some real clunkers on it. And it's also kind of more produced. I mean, I think George Martin did what he could, but it was just didn't take off, right? It didn't do very well. It was gold, but for a band that had just sold 3 million copies, it's, and, and uh, you know, uh, Dream Police was also platinum. You know, it was a step down. And, and then they, um, you know, uh, Tom Peterson left because he got this girlfriend and he wanted to form this terrible thing that's, you know, kind of a new wave project with her, Dagmar, um, you know, and, and so he left. And they brought this guy, John Branton, who looks very much like Tom Peterson. And the funny thing is they did an album cover trick with him, too. So for the next album, One on One, it's it's a series of pictures of the band kind of a, 
laying on top of each other and his face is half covered. <laughs> like, so you can't notice that it's not Tom Peterson. Yeah. So it's kind of funny, but they had, that had some really good songs on it. I want, if you want my love is a great Beatles, kind of more George Harrison style Beatles song. Um, that just didn't take off here. It was like number two in Australia, but it just didn't take off in the US. And then of course they had, you know, they made a couple of other albums, um, you know, that had hit and miss songs. And they made this one album called The Doctor that I think is their worst album. It's a terrible, terrible album. It's kind of the most, it's it's what shows you what 80s production can do to ruin some decent songs. Um, but then what happened, you know, of course they had another little, you know, a rise in popularity because the record company pressed them to pressured them to use outside songwriters. They work with Diane Warren. Uh, they work. I forget the guy's name who wrote um, the flame. It wasn't Diane Warren. It wasn't Desmond child, but it was like that era, right. right? Hart was doing the same thing. All the Aerosmith did the same thing. All these bands were using outside songwriters and um, they of course hated this. I call that. Yeah. Kiss. Exactly. Right. They were the first to do it with uh, Desmond child. Um, I call this their Bun Jovi era. Uh, it is not, uh, I do not like this shit. Uh, the Flame, I mean, as as well as Robin Zander does singing that song, I mean, he sings the shit out of that song. He's such a great singer. But it sucks. You know, it says, doesn't sound like Cheap Trick at all. It sounds much more like a typical kind of hair metal slash uh, kind of maybe something on that heart record, even though I like some of the stuff on animals, I think, or so whatever, bad animals, whatever. Uh, the, yeah. That was the one after the one I'm talking about is the one just called heart oh, okay, has never. And in, in these dreams, yeah. you know, but that, yeah, it was a bad animals yeah. or something was the next one. And that's got like alone yep, or something. That's on the it. one I was thinking. Of. I don't know. But anyway, you know, so, so, and then they had a t terrible version of don't be cruel. That's only good because they dress bunny Carlos up like Elvis in the video. So that's cool. You know, and they just kind of, they had a minor, you know, not, Flame was a number one song. It's their only number one hit in the United States. It was a worldwide hit. Um, you know, they sold more records, but again, it was short-lived. You know, they followed a, that up with another album, Busted, that just did more of the same. And then they kind of went away for a bit and came back with a couple albums in the 90s that were kind of truer to their sound. And what they've been doing since then is basically making records like they used to make, which is good. Um, you know, one of the best records is called Rockford, named after their hometown. And it's actually really good. Like, it's a decent record, but it's not heaven tonight. You know, right. it's not Budokan. It's it's um, it's a grower. You you listen to it and you can cut the songs are kind of catchy, but they're not catchy in the way surrender something like surrender is. You know, it's not instantly catchy or or as clever. You know, they're kind of lyrically just not as witty as those early songs. So that's kind of the history, right? They, that's kind of what they've done. And they and they eventually got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame pretty much on the strength of probably this album we're talking about, right? That never would have happened had this, you know, not existed. So definitely. Um, that's kind of the history of the band and Budokan. So let's go into our background with the band. Yeah, so I'll go first here. I was never really a huge uh, Cheap Trick fan growing up, but I had, was aware of them. And one of my best friends in elementary school had an older sister named Sharon, who's about five or six years older than we were. She kind of had blonde feathered hair, kind of like Robin Zander, but for a teenage girl, very pretty, I remember. And I just remember sort of following her around and, and watching her. Uh, she was in high school and had a big Cheap Trick poster on her wall in her, her bedroom. So I remember seeing Cheap Trick in that iconography that you were talking about there um, and, and all that. Um, I'd probably heard Cheap Trick uh, quite a bit at that time, probably Surrender. 
I couldn't really name all their other songs, but I remember the album covers more than anything else, as you were talking about. They were oh, almost yeah. like wallpaper of 70s uh, record collection, certainly the in color one with the motorcycle uh, on the front. The, I do remember thinking about the kind of handsome guys on the front, the goofy, ugly guys on the back thing. That was funny to me as a kid. And, and clearly Cheap Trick were in on the joke, right? Putting them on mopeds instead of motorcycles and, and things like that. Uh, but I, I remember that. I remember having tonight. I definitely remember the uh, Budokan uh, cover because it's kind of shot at that weird angle. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Robin Zander even uh, talked about that in in the interview with uh, Daryl Hall that I uh, played at the beginning, which was, you know, if, hey, this is a shitty picture, but it's okay. No one will ever see it, you know. It was kind of done on the on the download, it sounds like, a little bit. Um, I don't really think I thought much about Cheap Trick, though, as a band to think about or get into until uh, Fast Times, uh, where... Oh, yeah. The, I totally forgot about this, yeah, man. Where the, yeah, yeah. I totally forgot about Fast Times. So. It, it was a, a minor part of the movie, right, where the Damone character, who's a, a ticket scalper, concert ticket scalper was trying to sell tickets to some girl and he's pantomiming songs like Surrender and Dream Police and talking about oh, the yeah. charisma of Robin Zander and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I, I mean, Fast Times was a very important part of my uh, childhood. We'll get to that movie yeah, soon. Yeah, we, we got we to do Fast Times. Me too. Um, Me too. But yeah. I just remember like, oh, well, maybe I should listen to uh, more uh, Cheap Trick. And I do remember hearing Surrender a lot and he even listening to it back then more it's still my favorite cheap trick song and i'll talk about that in my evaluation um it, when we were in college you know a slip and i and our friends you know used to make these uh mixtapes and put little musical jokes in them just to amuse each other uh obviously uh 30 years later we're still doing that here with cfx to some degree but uh which is which is awesome um but yeah we i remember like we were playing or we play around with a lot of those intros to the budokan songs that were played at the beginning of the show and i want you to want me was one that and i need your love we would like like insert that into oh, various yeah, God. Uh, mixes and stuff like that just to kind of you know make each other laugh and I know, I mean, you were really, really into Cheap Trick when we were in college, and I started listening to them more just as a byproduct of, of you listening to them a lot. And the more I listened to them, the, the better it was, because the song that was fresh in my mind, of course, was The Flame that you're just talking about, which I, I think it's okay, but it was so overplayed on 80s radio, I, I grew to hate that song. I still can't listen to it um, at all. It's really not a Cheap Trick song, as you, you were uh yeah, it doesn't about. sound anything like anything else they ever did. Yeah, but I started listening to their the entire albums, you know, Heaven Tonight and In Color and and the Dream Place. Probably those three, really, only in Budokan, obviously. Um, when the the, the '70s show, that '70s show, as Cheap Trick were singing the the theme there, um, and then at the end, you know, they're doing the all our right thing, um, right from uh, Surrender. Um, there's a 30th anniversary CD that I had. I don't have any more. I might have sold it because when I got, you know, digital music, but that was the one I've always listened to in recent, you know, you know, last 15, however many years. Um, and it has all the songs, um, all the versions of the songs, all the ones that weren't on the original. The other thing, a uh, uh, couple of other quick stories here. One, uh, I remember seeing when I was in Paris in the mid nineties on uh, some TV show an extended interview with Rick Nielsen that was like an hour and a half. It was like, it was more like a documentary about him 
um, where they were at his house and in his home studio. And he was like showing off his guitar collection, which was like crazy, like a thousand oh, yeah. guitars or something like that. We didn't mention that at all. We, we should, we should go into that a little yeah, bit because right? he had, he had a partnership with kind of, I think it was Hamer yeah. and they made all these crazy guitars for him. Yeah. Right? I mean, did they have the one, there's one that looks like him. That's his body. <laughs> That's on the cover of Next Position, please. I love that. It's just like a Rick Nielsen and the and the necks are it's a double neck and the necks are his feet yeah, and the legs. That's funny. But we also should mention it's interesting too. Tom Peterson, who's kind of the least high profile member of the band in a lot of ways, he actually played a twelve string bass and he invented that with Hamer as well. So they had this partnership, and of course, he had Rick Nielsen. One of them was five necks. Yes. Which is what? What the fuck? I get two necks, like Jimmy Page. You have the six string and the twelve string. What the fuck are five necks for? It's just to be awesome. Yeah, just to you know, just to be crazy. Just to be crazy. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, he was showing off all these guitars. Like, I don't remember. You know, I'm into guitars and stuff like that, as you know. So, but the I remember that where he was like showing off these like crazy guitars. You know, the five neck stuff. All these. I mean, he had like thousands and thousands of guitars. I literally there were that many that. And it just went on forever and ever. And he had all these boxes and cases and um, and he had high profile, expensive classic guitars, you know, like your 59 Les Paul kind of high value guitars and, you know, 50s and 60s Stratocasters and things like that. And anyway, I just remember watching that and just going, oh, yeah, I like Cheap Trick. I should listen to them more and kind of getting back into them. And he's, Rick Nielsen's an interesting guy. You know, he, he's a good, he seems like a really cool dude and he has a lot of cool things to say about music and guitars. The last thing from a personal history, that's just kind of a funny story uh, is in the, let's see, in the uh, 2015, 2012, 2015 uh, era, I worked at a company with a guy, an Indian guy named, his name was Surendra was his name. And I remember, yeah, so <laughs> I remember, this is kind of funny. There's a, there's a meeting in, uh, when this guy was at and people were filing into this conference room and he was there. It was a few minutes before it got started. He was there and about you know five or six other people were there and he's sitting across from me. And I started singing to him, you know, your, your mom was all right. Your daddy's all right. This seemed a little weird. Surendra, Surendra. And everybody starts laughing just because they knew that song and his name was Surendra. And this poor guy had no idea what was going on. And he thought, I, I felt bad because I think he thought people were laughing at his him or his name. And that obviously was not really the intent. So I was trying to explain to him because I could see he was sort of, you know, put off by that. I was saying, hey, no, it's a song. Uh, it's a very famous song. It's Surrender, Surrender, and your name's Surrender, so it's kind of the same. And he was just confused by it. I mean, English was not his native language, and culturally he right, didn't know. Right. But anyway, what's kind of funny about that story, the denouement of that story, is that he uh, contacted he on, you know, like over same time, instant messenger said, what's the name of that song? And I sent him a link to it. And a couple of weeks later, he came by and he said to me that he shared that with his daughter, a uh, teenage daughter who grew up in the U.S. and, you know, was obviously much more Americanized. And she thought that was the funniest thing in the world and loved it and loved that this song sounded like his name and would play it constantly yeah. and, like, thought it was the coolest thing ever. So he was saying that his daughter loved it and he was trying to explain how much his daughter liked it. And he still had no idea why it was funny, obviously, because you kind of have to have a lot of context to get that joke. But I, I was happy at least that he didn't feel bad about it because I didn't want him to feel bad. I thought it was funny, but you know what I mean? So anyway, I'll turn it over to you. 
Cool. All right. So yeah, let's just say I've loved this band for a long time. They are absolutely one of my favorite bands ever. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember hearing, I want you to want me. It was a hit. Right. Um, and what's funny is I liked bands like this. I loved ELO too. I mean, the first record I ever bought with my own earned allowance money was out of the blue by ELO, the double record with uh, turn to stone, et cetera. But, and I think the reason I like these bands is because I love the Beatles too, but I didn't make the connection then. You know, I didn't think, oh, this really sounds like the Beatles, um, even though it obviously does, right? Um, because Cheap Trick was part of that, the bands that were cool when I was like in elementary school, right? So there were, there was ACDC and there was Led Zeppelin and, um, you know, obviously uh, Van Halen as well, which would be a little later. But um, those bands were really cool and Cheap Trick was somehow part of them, even though I don't think they share much in common with any of those right. bands, right? I mean, they're rocking, but they're much more melodic and poppy. Um, and what's one story I remember was in sixth grade, you know, we had um, it, we had two sixth grade classes in my elementary school. I was in Mrs. Spiritus's class, and there was another class, Mrs. Riley. And she, Mrs. Riley, took both classes on a field trip to this park in Orange County. There was this really big park that had a zoo in it. I don't remember. I should go and try to nostalgia, go down the nostalgia road and find out what this park was. Cause I don't even remember what it was called, but we went there and she brought her son who was like 19 and he had his tapes. He had a little ghetto blaster in his tapes and he had like, you know, a bunch of the stuff we all liked, you know, like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, you know, he had like Blue Oyster Cult who I was mystified by at the time, you know, I'd later come to love too. Um, but, uh, he had heaven tonight and, uh, you know, one of the kids, Wes Bridger, who was like one of the kind of cool kids, you know, and I was kind of friends with him, but I was kind of a nerd. So he would kind of half be friends with me, half like make fun of me. Um, but he pulled Sounds out. Sounds like, like oh, a 70s man, childhood is... to me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he was like, oh, man, this is awesome. You have this. And 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 the and the um, the son, and I forget his name. He was just like, you can have that. I'm sick of that. I don't like that anymore. And I was like, wow, okay. And I remember seeing the cover and thinking about it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I started to listen to their music more. And I think I had a poster of Cheap Trick before I had any records. You know, I got posters on my wall. I had like Journey Captured with the poster that came in there. I had Led Zeppelin posters, of course, because they were my favorite band at the time. And, um, you know, Cheap Trick was one of those hard rock posters I somehow got a hold of and I put it up there, even though I didn't have the records yet. I really started getting more into them in high school because I liked them. But then in high school, I started reading old Rolling Stones. I, I had the Rolling Stone record guide. I was really into rock criticism. So I started getting the classic rock like The Who, Pink Floyd, The Beatles. And Cheap Trick got really good reviews in there because they were critically acclaimed, as I mentioned. You know, their first album came out. It was a critical success. But you know, a flop popularity wise. Um, so in other words, I saw the five star review, which is five out of five perfect review of Budokan. And I realized, Hey, this is something I like. That's okay to like, because the critics like right. it. So <laughs> that's what really got, cause I was such a dork with the critics. Um, and we'll probably talk more about how the critics sort of ruined my childhood in some ways in later episodes. Uh, when we talk about more heavy metal and stuff that I kind of turned, started to turn my nose up, but that I love now. Um, but Cheap Trick was one of those bands that straddled both of those worlds. They were kind of hard rock and, you know, that KLOS, KMET, those are L.A. stations we grew up with. Um, they were in that vein, but they also were critically acclaimed. So they kind of were cool for me to like. In in college, I got a used copy of In Color 
And I remember listening to the song Downed and I was already into Nirvana. I'm like, this sounds like Nirvana. You know, it's like, it sounds like the same thing. So I was, that was even more, I got even more into the band because they were such a proto grunge band in some ways, not proto grunge in the sense of Pearl Jam that we talked about in, in, you know, the Nirvana episode, but in the sense of the power pop that Nirvana was very influenced by. So they were kind of a precursor to Nirvana. So that made me like them even more. Right. So I was really into them. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, I have all the albums on vinyl to this day, uh, up to and including Dream Police. I don't have anything beyond that. Um, you know, I probably would get one-on-one or All Shook Up by Song for a buck or two, but I probably wouldn't invest much more than that. Um, they're pretty spotty. But, uh, you know, obviously, this all this culminated in me eventually seeing the band live. So in the 90s, my uncle had this, there was this uh, place up in Clear Lake, California, which is kind of northern central California, north of San Francisco, but east also. And it's this place called Clear Lake. It's a resort town. And they had this place called Canocti um, Harbor, which was the resort. And they had a, uh, they had shows there. And it was kind of these washed up, semi-washed up artists in the 90s. Like, this is the, this is the time when bands like Styx and Deep Purple would do shows together. Even yeah. though these two bands that used to command arenas on their own, now they're in this small place in Kanakdai. Um, and I saw Weird Al Yankovic there. I saw Eddie Money. That's a perfect <laughs> example. He was like almost, they almost should have had a statue of Eddie Money. He played Kanakdai so much. Um, That's the but, one where you had that story. This is a future episode about the, you know, about the kid. Oh, you mean the guy who almost kicked my no, ass because I was making fun of Eddie no, Money? No, the, the and, one or, where or, the stories or, that Eddie Money was telling about the his his stage banter. Oh, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that for another I don't time. know if we're ever going to do fucking Eddie Money, dude, but I'll save the story <laughs> for some other time. But it's like, yeah, there's there's like three or four stories from the Eddie Money show that are really funny. Yeah. But I saw Cheap Trick, right? And Cheap Trick, the funny thing about them is their opening act was Greg Kinn. If you remember Greg yeah. Kinn, Greg Kinn had two songs Lost on Jeopardy. The, well, of course, that's the that's his only really big hit. But he had this radio song I really liked called They Don't Write Them Like That Anymore. That was like a, a another power pop song. So that kind of fit in with Cheap Trick, right? Um, but of course, he had only really one big hit, which was Jeopardy. And the funny thing about Greg Kinn is he's playing all these songs no one knows. He plays They Don't Write Them Like That Anymore. There's a few, you know, scattering applause. And then he plays Jeopardy for like 20 fucking minutes. <laughs> like, it's like this really epic version of Jeopardy. That's funny. The other thing about that show is personal. Uh, I'm going to mention, I'm going to go ahead and talk about it because it's such a big part of my life. So, you know, growing up, my parents in the 70s, you know, they used to, I would go stay with my cousin Greg, who I'm really close with. And my parents, you know, we would, they would take us up to their house and they lived in the desert and like, they would watch Saturday Night Live together. Like we would have to go to bed, even though we love Saturday Night Live too. This is like classic Saturday. This is like 77, 78 Saturday Night Live with like, you know, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Belushi, uh, John yeah. Belushi. And, you know, we liked it too, but they would put us to bed. And the reason was, is they would just want to smoke weed, <laughs> right? So nice. we'd, be in, we'd be in the bedroom and we would totally smell the weed. We knew what was going on. They weren't hiding yeah. anything from anybody, right? So we knew, I knew my parents liked to smoke a little weed. I remember in the, in the eighties, I found a burnt, half burnt joint in my dad's By the way, this uh, is very apropos I, to the surrender lyrics that I'll get into soon. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. Yes. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so at any rate, they, um, you know, so I, I, found a half used joint. I smoked my dad, uh, you know, in my dad's bedroom once, but my, I knew my uncle was, a, was a stoner. We knew that he smoked pot. Right. And my cousin Greg also. Right. 
So in the nineties, I remember, you know, Greg's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, come on. (laughs) Sorry, Greg. I know you're listening to this. He's a marijuana achiever. So anyway, um, so he, he was like, you know, dude, I think I'm going to try to break down this wall because even though both Greg and Raj smoked weed and they kind of knew each other smoked weed, um, they didn't really talk about it and they didn't smoke weed together. But this concert before the concert in the parking lot, the wall was broken. And we all passed a joint around. It was one of the greatest times of my life. Um, and it didn't hurt that cheap trick completely ruled. Now, I know that there's some heartbreak on this show for me about the reality of Budokan, but I can I can attest to the fact that live, they sounded amazing. Robin Zander sounded just as good as he did in the 70s. Um, and they played a bunch of weird stuff, too. They played Hello Kitties, for example. They played He's a Whore, which is another great song from the first album. And they played all the stuff you'd want to hear from Budokan as well. Ain't that a shame? Surrender. I want you to want me. Come on, come on. You know, all the greats from that album, even though I think everything on that album is great. I think they might have played Big Eyes. I don't remember. But um, the set list is available. It was February 1995. So I saw them. And the other cool thing was, you know, uh, Rick Nielsen had changed his look. So during this time, he had this massive ZZ Top beard. And I mean, I'm talking full length ZZ Top. And that was awesome to see. And he was tossing picks into the audience and doing all this kind of guitar trickery. And it was really good. And, and my cousin caught a pick. So he had a, has a pick from that show. Um, so that's basically, you know, that takes us up to the present day. You know, I, I pretty much have, have always loved the band and uh, I continue to to this day. Yeah. So let's do the evaluation. Yeah, let's do that. I'll kick it off here. First of all, I just want to say that I think Cheap Trick is arguably one of the greatest names for a band ever. Uh, oh, that's true. Um, yeah, maybe second or third on my list to Steely Dan, which you know, if you name it, you're a great, great band after a dildo. That's pretty funny. Uh, Butthole Surfers, I also think is an awesome name for a band. Oh yeah, I love. It's an amazing. I also name. love the name uh, Quarter Flash. We'll talk about that band in the future too. I think it's a great name for a band, but but Cheap Trick. Great name for a band. Part of the appeal to me about Cheap Trick was the, you know, the font, like you were talking about, the posters, the iconography and all that stuff. And then the name was just a great name. Um, yeah. The, the Budokan album from an evaluation, like I said before, the album actually, I think, you know, in, in modern recording sort of standard sounds like shit, even with all the fixing, there's like little bottom end. The recording is actually pretty poor. The playing is sloppy in, in pieces, even with them redoing uh, significant uh, elements of it. Um, right. But because of it, despite of it, I don't know, it, there's a charm about that album that just works. It just works. When you listen to it, it's enjoyable. It's a fun listen. I I dislike it. And, and I'm maybe more willing to forgive that because you know, all the remixes and redubs and remakes elements of it, because in the end, the product and product, you know, kind of all comes together. Um, Surrender the live out the live version of it especially is an all-time great song in my opinion all-time rock great song the lyrics always fascinated me they still do the, first of all the generational interplay of the kid teenage presumably like a teenage kid uh, and his parents thinking that they were uncool and you know what he finds out later I'll get to in a second but the I remember uh debating with people the meaning of the you know soldiers falling off uh, from the Indonesian junk that was going around and coming to the realization that it was kind of a joke about, you know, dicks falling off because of VD. 
basically during the, the during the war. There's different interpretations of all these things. By the way, these are the ones that I'm choosing to uh, buy into. The the idea that the you know kid is um, ha- thinking his parents are weird and old and you know un uncool and hip, all that stuff. And finding out, you know, waking up from a nap or whatever and finding his parents, uh, you know, listening to Kiss Records, uh, which was an homage, you know, to Kiss, who, again, Kiss, you know, despite all the things that may not be so great about them, were really generous and cool to their opening acts. And they were to Rush. We talked about that. They were to Cheap Trick as well. And and the Cheap Trick... Till this day, and they love the band. They, they loved Cheap Trick. They loved the music because yep. they were Beatles fans, yep. right? They were, uh, and they actually, uh, Gene Simmons says, "I, you know, it's actually a rare moment of humility for Gene Simmons." He said, "You know, I was completely honored by them mentioning us, not only because it's an incredible song, but because for anyone to mention us like this and pay homage to us like this is completely." Uh, you know, this is the most egotistical person who ever right. lived saying this, you know, and it's like, that's kind of, that's how powerful this fucking song is. It is. You and, know, it's- and by the way, during their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame acceptance, they also uh, thanked uh, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, uh, you know, recently even for for, for that. So yeah. they were really cool to them. The, um, the part of the song here, um, I'm just going to play this and then I'm going to talk about it here. So hang on. Yeah. Okay, so mom and dad were rolling on the couch. All right, that's pretty straightforward. The Kiss records, pretty straightforward. Uh, the rolling numbers line, I want to talk about that because yeah. there's a lot of interpretations yeah. of that. One interpretation is exactly kind of straightforward that they were gambling, you know, throwing dice and gambling, but that makes no sense in the context of right. the song. So I have done a lot of investigations of this line because I've been obsessed with this song for years. And Really, there's two interpretations, both funny, and one is probably more probable than the other. I like the other one more because it's funnier. The first one that I think is what it is referring to is smoking weed. For whatever reason, rolling numbers was about rolling joints and smoking weed. That actually makes sense in the context of the song. In the song they were listening to music. They were making out. They were smoking weed. All sounds like a great Saturday night. Um, the other interpretation of the rolling numbers that I read, which is pretty funny, is it was 69ing, <laughs> which. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah I, I always thought it was joints. I, I never thought that that's that. But to me, that actually kind of makes sense, given uh, how perverted Rick Nielsen maybe, is. Maybe. But it's also you know? the most disturbing thing in the world if you think about walking in on your parents doing that. Yeah. Which maybe happened to Rick Nielsen and why he's so perverted. I, I don't know. But I I loved this song and I thought these lyrics were just really, really weird and cool and great. And they're I think it's poetry, man. I think this is as good as like uh, this is like almost captures something like catcher in the rye level character development. Yeah. Like it's it's the way that Robin Zander sings it. He's kind of snarky and teen. Yep. And but there it's it's literary. I mean, the, the just the way the words are put together and then the whole story it's got a whole story. It does. You know, it's got the it's got the snarky kind of lead character to it. It's so sophisticated in a way 
but being but also being direct and simple and catchy at the same time. Like it's it's yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree with you. This is the best song, best thing they ever did. It's an absolute rock masterpiece in my mind. Um, one of the greatest songs ever. Yeah, made. and it's subversive and it's direct and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and another hallmark of a great song, in my opinion, is you think of the lyrics in a lot of different contexts where it's they weren't intended because it's in your head. And, you know, the the catchphrase, right? Surrender, but don't give yourself away. I mean, I think that there's something to that in a lot of popular context and commercialism and selling out and maybe personal stories. And it's all goodness. I, I love this song. I still love this song. Um, I think it's, as you said, one of the best songs in, in rock history. Um, Hello Kitties is another uh, great song. I like it. It has really weird subversive lyrics too. Um, when you think about it and like the churning stomach stuff and the, I, I think it's sort of like younger people, I always interpret this as younger people kind of growing up and taking on adult responsibilities. Maybe I'm over uh, reading stuff into that, but I, but I like it. Um, the other song I love on this album, and it's probably my second favorite song and, and people don't talk about it as often as the others, but it's uh, this one. I'm going to play a little clip. Just a great rock song. Just a great song live. With an amazing lead vocals. Yeah. Like, he's so great. I, I love everything he does in the song. Yeah, I agree with you. This is probably my second favorite. I don't know. I'm going to talk about Ain't That a Shame, too, because I love that so much. But I, I think uh, this is a great song. And it's, yeah, it's much more simple. It is. The lyrics uh, are simple or whatever like it is. But Rick Nielsen's yeah. backup vocals, whether they were live or not, doesn't matter at this point. Um were great on it and really contribute to the song. And I, I love this song. Every time I hear it, I'm just like, I just love this song. Um, I Want You to Want Me is pretty classic and it's been you know played a lot. I still love that. Um, it's been sampled. I think the Beastie Boys sampled it on Check Your Head, if I recall correctly. Um, or they may have been Surrender. I don't know. They sampled one of, one of something from here. Well, they sampled the, the beginning of, they sampled the... Um... I mean, they might have sampled some of the music from this, but the, what they sample from Surrender is the is the uh, the song banner at oh, the, the beginning. This song. is the first yeah. song on our new album. Yeah, I, I think it was on. <laughs> it's on Check Your Head. Was it like? It's on Check Your Head. It opens. Oh, Check is your it head. Jimmy James? I think it's Jimmy yeah. James. Yeah. Okay. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, the um, Arvita Zen we talked about. It's an odd song, but it's interesting. It's about suicide. It's kind of a weird song. No, oh, I think it's another absolute classic it's it's so dark yeah. i don't think you could make a song like that now. yeah it's weird you know in our sensitive times it's like you know it's almost gleeful about being about suicide yeah. you know it, it's just and it rocks it really it rocks hard too it's very punky yeah. you know uh, in a lot of ways yeah um anyway i think cheap tricks music is is really just fun um there's some cleverness to some of it like surrender we talked about mostly it's just like good straightforward rock and roll and i, I really like it um Overall, I, I'm definitely long here, but I, I don't think I'm quite as big a fan as you are. 
I like them a lot. I like this album. I think it will hold up very well over time and continue to be a big part of that late 70s live album zeitgeist that we've been talking about. We talked about on the Kiss episode, um, you know, with Frampton Comes Alive. This album is definitely one of those things. And like we were saying before, when you say Budokan, you think a cheap trick. And when you think a cheap trick, you think a Budokan. And I, I think this album will be there over the long run with people talking about this era and the time and live albums and rock music. And so, yeah, there you go. So that's my evaluation. I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Okay, first of all, let me say that um, I'm really feeling uh, upset about learning how fake this album is, how not live it is. Uh, it is a shame <laughs> that it's all a cheap trick. Um, but but the, the thing is, look, I, I look at it like this. Um, I think, you, you know, you can, you know, I talk about Lance Armstrong and, and what a great cyclist he was and how he lied and lied about PEDs for years. But then, you know, and they take away his championships and all this. But the fact is, is that doesn't take away from the fact that he still was the greatest living cyclist when he ran those races. Why? Because everybody does PEDs in those races. So it's like if everybody's doing them and he's beating people really badly, then obviously he's still the best, right? So if Kiss is taking a live album and Cheap Trick is saving a live album and the Cheap Trick live album is way better, they're still better, Right. right? It's like, who cares? You know, so it it just it seems like no live album is really live. I mean, we'll probably talk about maybe we'll talk about Judas Priest Unleashed in the East. That's another famous quote unquote live album. Um, I hope that UFO Strangers in the Night is mostly real. That's another one of my favorite live albums of all time. Uh, Same from the same era. But I'm guessing they're not. You know, I'm guessing that there's tons of trickery that was done to, you know, these albums. So the fact that it's fake is conflicting. I'm also conflicted about another, you know, as much as I love the band, I'm trying to think, it's not, am I long on them? It's like, how great were they? You know, how major of a band were they, right? Um, You know, obviously, if you take a look at their output between 1977 and 79, you know, everything from the debut, including Budokan, Heaven Tonight, and Color, and Dream Police, if that was it, they would be like one of the great lost bands of all time. These albums are pretty damn great you know all the way through uh with nary a clunker on them you know and um if you just look at that output they're amazing but then if you take their other output from 1980 on it's very spotty i mean you know i don't know i like the song she's tight but it's no surrender let's just let's just put it that way um and you know the doctor terrible album the flame all that stuff and then they're, you know, they're now they're playing to their legacy with the albums they release every few years. They just released an album in 2021 called what, In Another World. And it's good. It's really good. It's got some great songs, but it kind of leaves you bored after a while. You're kind of like, eh, these kind of sound the same. You wouldn't really say that for something like Heaven Tonight or In Color, because every song is so melodically interesting and stands on its own. Whereas this album, you know, there's a couple of songs that really stand out, but that's kind of how it's been for the last 20 years. So I'm a little um, conflicted there. The other thing is they still owe so much to the Beatles, you know, like so, so much. Um, You know, they play Beatles music like it's a genre. Same with ELO, but ELO at least had some other, you know, things going on. I mean, Cheap Trick does have some interesting things. They have, it's almost like that John Lennon wit, but even more crazy on some of their, you know, their cleverness. I mean, obviously we talked about the cleverness of Surrender. 
Um, you know, the first album, especially is really dark. Hello Kitties is on there. We talked about that. Um, and I love that darkness, but at the same time, you know, the Beatles were great because not only did they play these catchy, memorable songs in a way that everybody loved them, but they were the first to do it. You know, these other bands like Badfinger, as much as I love them, they're playing Beatles kind of music. They wouldn't exist without them. So how great is that? Right. Um, I would argue it, none of that stuff matters too much. You can still enjoy the albums for what they are. And, um, you know, you can still uh, enjoy Budokan, even if it's not completely authentic from a live perspective. I think that the the music itself kind of has so much power. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm still long on them. Let's talk about what makes Budokan so good. Right. Uh, first of all, the audience is like a member of the band. You know, they're screaming throughout. Now, obviously, the screams were turned up so that they were more voluminous than they probably were. But it really does contribute to the feeling of excitement. And it really does feel, you know, it uplifts the songs. I mean, the most the thing that Budokan does that live albums should do is they add to what the original songs were. Yeah. And I think that um, the, the versions on Budokan are the definitive versions of all these songs, including Surrender, which is pretty good as a studio version as the, well. The live you know, screaming um, that you're talking about, whether how it was doctored or altered for the recording, putting that aside, was real. And all the band yeah. members were talking. There was mania, yeah, they right? Were like, we documented that yeah, earlier. It was, they couldn't even hear themselves. Like I, I saw an interview with, uh, with, with Bunny Carlos who was saying, his drum tech was like, you know, six inches from his face at some point. He couldn't even hear him. Or So the screaming was real. It was overwhelming. It was almost like, you know, the Beatles at Shea Stadium or, you know, whatever it is, um, where the, you couldn't even hear the, the playing at, at times. So anyway, go ahead. And another thing I learned from, you know, we talked about the cleverness of Surrender's lyrics, but the other thing I learned from this uh, uh, Doug Broad book um, was he talks about big eyes. Right. The lyric is, I keep falling for those big eyes. I keep falling for those big guys. <sighs> it's like a, it's like a joke. Yeah. Right. And um, and, you know, obviously um, there's another song you mentioned, Stiff Competition, Stiff <laughs> Competition. There's a line in there that says, I looked hard in her eyes. So it's like these double entendres yeah. that are like not even subtle. But they're they're very prurient. He's very dirty. You know, it's it's um, you know, obviously they have a song. He's a whore. You know, it's that same kind of thing. I love those. You know, I love the 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 kind of cleverness. And then, I, of course, I love the way they they are influenced by the Beatles. You know, they um, they're not just playing. She loves you. They're doing these kind of more sophisticated songs that tended to be like stuff like the example I, I use is Big Eyes. It's got this very minor sound, dark minor sound that reminds me of John Lennon's classic song, I Want You, She's So Heavy. You know, a lot of the songs have that minor sound. Some of them kind of mind the George Harrison melodies. Some are Paul McCartney, some are John Lennon. And then, of course, with Surrender, you have those keyboards, which are straight from Who's Next. You know, same with Dream Police. They're completely from Who's Next. And the power chords are very Pete Townsend, right? But it's the way they do it that is still strike, you know, it still carves out an original niche for them, even though it's influenced by this other stuff, right? Um, the other thing is the band is great. They are not, I don't think any one of them are virtuosos, except for maybe Robin Zander. I do think he is one of the most underrated and unheralded vocalists of all time. I think he takes the best bits of John, John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison and turns it up to 10, giving it a heavier, bigger sound. 
I think he's got more power than any either, any of those singers, as great as they were. Maybe I don't know. John Lennon and Paul McCartney are pretty great rock yeah, singers. I was say, yeah. Kind of hard to it's kind of hard to say that, but I think he does have like he has a a range and a power that might even be more. Like he's really good, um, and I think he's the one kind of virtuosic guy. I, I mean, Rob, uh, you know, obviously Rick Nielsen is a virtuoso in a sense. He's very good guitarist. He's great at riffs, but he's not a fancy soloist. You know, he's not doing these kind of, he's not Eddie Van Halen, right. let's just put it that way. But he's a great writer. And, um, but I want to show what the band could do, even though how live this is, I don't care. Let's play a little, let's play the great beginning to Ain't That a Shame, which is one of my favorite pieces of music of all time. here's what's funny about there's two things that are funny about this uh one is that this pretty much plays to the fact that this is not the same version that you hear on the record it is um this is probably actually what the version was like because this comes from a video that that anniversary set that 30th anniversary at least one of the editions had a dvd that's the actual show um and i think they might have doctored that but this is different right it doesn't have the kind of guitar solo he does like the little riffing he does um i am originally meant to put the original album version but this is the one i found so it's kind of but then i decided let's leave it in because i wanted to talk about how it's different it's still good but um you know it doesn't have quite the excitement that the actual fabricated version does where probably they layered that guitar on afterwards you know the one yeah, i mean i do where he's like kind of doing that tr- the the hammering yeah he's doing pull on um, and pull-offs and and, ha- and yeah. right that probably was added later or maybe that was a different show i don't know but it's like i still love that version it's like it's probably the only drum solo if you could call it a drum solo that i like of any live thing other than maybe neil pert who's obviously a virtuoso Bunny Carlos isn't a virtuoso, but I think I just love the way this is put together. Um, It's one of my favorite intros ever. It's um, and the original, the beginning of that is completely theirs. Now, the song is a cover of a cover. So it's a cover of John Lennon's version of Fats Domino's Ain't That a Shame. Right. You know, so it's a cover of a cover, but it's I think they make it their own. It's one of my favorite cover versions of anything. Um, and I love the way that the vocals come in at the end of that. It's just so exciting. And I, I really like Bunny Carlos's little fills there. 
It's just got a charm to it. It's not, you know, it's not virtuosic in the sense of he's really trying to show off. He's just doing, they're just creating this little cool intro to build up to it. And it really kind of explodes at the end there. And I just love it. Um, and so uh, I want to talk about also what the live version did, you know, because we know what happened was, right, I Want You to Want Me was released as a single. The studio version tanked. I already talked about how Tom Warman monkeyed around with what the band had wanted to do. And of course, what the band had wanted to do was the right thing, because that's what you get here. You get the live version. So let's play the first bit of the first 30 seconds or so of the studio. Or No, it's not the first. I wanted to do uh, the, one of the verses rather than the chorus. Uh, leading into the chorus. So let's play that from the from the original in color version. almost like a, a Leaf Garrett version of a song, very bubblegum. Yeah, I know. It's like yeah. bubblegum. It's like Sean Cassidy or Leaf right. Garrett. It's like, the, it's so lightweight. I mean, I also found myself like listening to that. I'm like, woke up, got out of the bed, <laughs> dragged yeah, a comb. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's a little too on the nose, yeah. but it doesn't have any of the power of day in the life right, either, right. right? It's it's just like weak sauce. It's like these little rickety pianos and then he's got Jay Graydon in there. <laughs> which doesn't even go with the song. It doesn't even sound like it doesn't sound remotely like Rick Nielsen's kind of playing, you know, I don't see him playing those little clean wispy lines. Um, let's play the live version, the same segment, but live. Gotcha. Here you go. Yeah, just way right. better, right? I mean, his vocals are better. Uh, you hear a little bit of the crack, crack, yeah. um, of the audience. Um, and the uh, guitar, the, yeah, the guitar mean, flourishes I, obviously way different than the studio. Uh, yeah, way better, yeah. more rocking. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a rock band as opposed to like the Bay fucking City Rollers or some shit. <laughs> that's, that's you know, it's like yeah, so that's what it sounds so like exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 just not it doesn't have any edge and you you know it was it, Tom Warman was like, well, we want to get him to play on the radio, so I'm going to make him pop, but it takes away the edge. I mean, that song is catchy enough. You don't need to do anything to it. It's it's completely a memorable song and there's a reason it was a hit with this version as opposed to the other one because the other one saps all the energy out of it. Um you know, it's just a, a goofy toy novelty song as opposed to like just a straight ahead pop rock song, which they do on the live album. Um, as far as Budokan 2, I like that it's short and succinct. Um, it's it's just it never lets up, you know, from, you know, you open with, uh, you know, uh, hello there. It zooms right into come on, uh, come on, come on. Then it just goes into look out. Right. It's like it just doesn't let up. It just keeps going and it keeps maintains this energy and pace. And it's kind of over and done with too soon, right? It's missing Hello Kitties. It's missing Speak Now and these songs. But in a way, 
it kind of works. It's just a burst of energy to me. And it's, you know, I think it's the greatest pure pop, power pop album ever. Um, you know, because the Beatles, they're not limited to power pop. You know, they don't, they don't really have an album that rocks all the way to the beginning and the end. They were doing more sophisticated things, right? You know, um, even something, probably the closest thing they came to that was maybe A Hard Day's Night or, you know, Rubber Soul. These albums are more kind of pure pop. But then even Rubber Soul, you got Norwegian Wood in there. With this album, it's just straight ahead pop songs from start to finish that are rocking. There's no, um, I mean, I guess you do have Need Your Love, which is more of a heavy, slow number, which I also love. Um, And what's interesting is it's also interesting and curious to me that they're like, well, we don't want to put these albums from the songs from the first album or Afita Zane or whatever, but we're going to include like, you know, three or three songs that were never released ever. Right. You know, like uh, Look Out, for instance, is the only place you're going to hear this is this record. I think there's probably a studio version you can hear on YouTube, but they never released that in any record. Need Your Love would come out on Dream Police, right? And then Ain't That a Shame was just on this as well. So it was kind of interesting that they didn't want to release those songs that were already on the records, but they or even Southern Girls, which was, you know, in, I think that's in the, the Budokan version you're talking about. It was about on the, the 30th. That's such yeah. a catchy, great song. It's such a hit, you know, to me, or down. These songs are so melodic. They didn't want to include those. But again, it was just the nature of Budokan is that it was a, a quick cash grab for the Japanese market. You know, it was just like, so they, they put together a short and sweet album. And I, I like that, you know, um, it also, you know, it also made me appreciate the Beatles in a different way. You know, when I first started listening to the Beatles, when I was really young, I loved, I want to hold your hand and she loves you. By the time I was in high school, I fucking thought that stuff was useless. I'm like the Beatles start with rubber soul and you know, they end with let it be all this stuff before is bullshit. I like day tripper. It's okay. But you know, it was only really when they got experimental, you know, this is my rock critic thing. But when I got back into this, it was so fun and innocent that I could appreciate like, please, please me and shit and how good it is, you know? And so it kind of made me appreciate just kind of the simple joys of pop. And again, the album has got so much energy and joy to it. And then, of course, the whole story, the underdog story, I love it. You know, like the story of this band that's a million dollars in debt. They just need that rocky moment to turn shit around and they fucking do it in the most unexpected way. And it's even Spinal Tap pays homage to this, right? Because at the end of Spinal Tap, where they go to Japan and they're right, huge, right. which is a lot of bands. Like Anvil's story is that way too, you know? But it's like, that's all based on this. This was that myth in the making and, and it's mythic. And so the fact that it's not completely authentic is part of that myth. You know, it's part of the myth and it broke my heart to read this and, you know, it sucked. But at the same time, I'm still behind it because I think it's still, you know, you could still put that record on and I never get sick of it. I can listen to it over and over again. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love it. And uh, the charm of the band and their Midwesternness, you know, and of course, what happened to them later, you know, um, Illinois, the state, Illinois State Senate basically made April Fool's cheap trick day in all of Illinois. Nice. It's like an official day. You know, they're they're kind of like the underdogs, like the, the Chicago Cubs. They even have a Chicago Cubs cheap trick shirt you could get, you know, it's 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 kind of that, you know, flyover zone area. And they're like these underdogs, this lesser band that came out of nowhere and just wowed the world for a bright shining moment. They were the band of the moment. And I think that's worth celebrating and worth, uh, you know, that's their legacy. And that's what they're playing to now. They're kind of like forgetting all the, I mean, they'll probably still play the flame when you see them live because it was a number one song. Got to play it. 
But my guess is they de-emphasize that era a lot, and they're probably tending to play more of these early songs. And that's what they did when I saw them. Um, so, yeah, I'm still behind it, even though it is kind of a crushing blow to discover that the magic of that album is there's there's a there's a guy behind the curtain. In other words, you know, it's not just the magic. And he was a he was a big it's, guy a, with big eyes or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, big guys. All right. So that's it. Budokan forever. All right. Yeah. Thank you. There we go. I think we're both long in, <laughs> in right, various cool. ways. So uh, thank you for joining us for CFX episode eight. I want you to want me. We'll catch you next time uh, where we our next episode will be a surprise to you. We know what it is, but uh, it'll be a surprise uh, to you. We are out of here and Cheap Trick will play us out. So here we go. <laughs>